You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This week is a rather rad one. I'm talking to Devin from the Acacia Strain. If you know the Acacia Strain, well, I guess you're probably pretty familiar with what we're about to get into. But if you're not, let me just say they are one of the heaviest bands out there. They will absolutely rip your face off. I've been following them for a very long time, so it was a real treat to get to talk to Devin. And we get really gear heavy on this one, which I know is a nice change because this is supposedly a guitar podcast and we actually do get into all of that. So gearheads rejoice. We're not uh, waxing philosophical so much as we occasionally do on this podcast. I do have just a little bit of business to get to, and then we will dive right into the episode. Firstly, as you hear this, I am going to be in... Anaheim attending the NAM show the week after this episode debuts. So, yeah, starting on the 12th, I'll be flying down to sunny California and I will be at the Stringjoy booth the whole time. And we are right in between Hall D and Hall C, sort of at the entrance there to Hall C. You walk through those doors, we're, we're right there. So, if you want to come say hi, I will be there pretty much the whole time. And I'd love to say hello to anybody who's listening to the show and just uh, nerd out for a little bit. So don't be a stranger if you see a short, weirdly bearded man standing there looking uh, dazed and confused. That'll be me. So yeah, definitely come say hi if you're in Anaheim for the NAM show. I'll be there the 13th through the 15th. So come say hello. And furthermore, I wanted to open up something to everyone, something that I've been doing a lot more of lately As a lot of you are aware, I used to do a lot of consulting work, mainly for bigger brands in the gear space. But lately, I've been taking a lot of phone calls with people from all across the spectrum as far as career goes. I'll do my best to explain here. Basically, my old consulting roles were very, very hands-on, very time-consuming and very labor-intensive, working directly with different creative aspects of brands, working with overall marketing strategies, working with literally the entire direction of certain companies. As the podcast grew and as Stringjoy started occupying most of that available bandwidth, I backed off from doing consulting. I still have a couple clients that I work closely with, but overall, I don't take on nearly the amount of big brand projects that I used to. Now, that said, I have been very recently, actually, taking on a lot more one-on-one type of phone calls, less hands-on me doing creative development and actually formulating the direction of brands, but more just sitting down and helping somebody out with their strategy for an hour. And that has been as complex as helping a larger brand try to tighten things up and help them focus their marketing efforts where they're going to be the most effective. But a lot of it has been folks that found themselves in a position that I used to be in. And I know a lot of you know that story, so I won't try to rehash the whole thing. But basically, I found myself in a job that I didn't want to be in anymore. And I wanted to find a new way to try to pay my bills and go about my day to day. And that is how this whole crazy podcast thing came together. And so a lot of it's been talking to people in the early stages of maybe starting a YouTube career or a podcast or a podcast network or even getting started with a small gear company or a restaurant, a food cart, a graphic design firm, literally anything where you're looking at leaping from a regular nine to five 
into a more self-employed type of lifestyle, I can advise on a lot of that. There are a lot of things that aren't totally obvious if you've always been a W-2 paycheck type employee that are very valuable to know before you just dive in. Like, should I form an LLC? What should I do? Do I need an EIN number? What does all this mean? Now, I'm not a CPA or anything like that, but I can definitely get you pointed in the right direction in a relatively short time frame. So if that's something you think I could help you out with, or if you know somebody that might benefit from having a phone call like that, I'm kind of opening my books up for that a little bit more. I haven't really talked about it publicly until now. It's just sort of naturally happened. So if you would like to sit down and have those type of conversations, I am available. So you can hit me up at info at tonemob.com or through the contact me page on the website, and we can get talking about how to get that on the books, get that scheduled, and we will make that happen. All right, that was a really long intro. Sorry, I had to get that business out of the way real quick. But without further ado, let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Wyland, and with me today, I have Devin Scheidaker from the Acacia Strain and, well, lots of other stuff, too. So I'm sure we're, we're going to get into all that. <laughs> One thing I didn't know until this was scheduled to come on is that you were doing work with Balaguer, uh, and Joe's been on the show before. So that's oh, kind of cool. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Joe, good, good friend of mine, uh, also my boss. I am on the artist relations team for Balaguer. So uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun getting to work both sides of the world there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's super cool. Yeah, and I've played his stuff at, at NAM and it's it's great. So that's well, I'm sure we'll get into that whole story, but definitely. Uh, yeah. But let's start with you. Uh how did you uh what's what's the what's the story of little Devin like when you started playing and I like I want to get the whole the whole nine yards up till today. Yeah, so okay. Um around middle school was when I started getting more interested in music beyond just listening to it. Mm-hmm. And our school, there was like an overcrowding issue. So they, our middle school had fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. So Whoa. I, I started in band in fifth grade playing drums. And it was a lot of fun. But in my head, I was like, I tried to be, I wanted to be in band and orchestra and play um, violin just because okay. I thought it was, I was like, oh, that seems cool. Mm-hmm. And like the band instructor and the guy that ran the orchestra, he was like, you, well, you can't be in both you can't do percussion and a string instrument and i was like but i want to and i <laughs> so I, I wasn't allowed um suck with drums and then i was just like i wanted a guitar um had no idea how to play one but I, there was the period in sixth grade where i was like like many people in the, the late 90s i was like corn is the coolest band on earth of course and of course yeah i didn't play guitar yet but I would get like the heavy metal magazines like Hit Parader and, you know, whatever else. And I remember seeing the ad for the Ibanez K7. And I was like, I want one of those. And that was like Christmas. I was like, I want an Ibanez K7 in Blade Gray. That's the guitar. Had no idea that it was like $1,400. Yeah, and, which is unfathomable at that point, right? Oh, yeah. It might as well have been $14 million. Right. So asked for it. Christmas time comes around. There is a guitar case shaped box 
under the tree and I'm like, here it is. Mm -hmm. There it is. Can't wait. Yep. Christmas morning comes around. I open it and it is, uh, the brand is Excel and it is an acoustic guitar. (laughs) Um, and you know, my mom was at that time, single mom trying her best, doing her best, doing a great job. And that was like, uh, somebody she worked with gave that to her to give to me. Mm -hmm. And of course being, you know, 12, 13 years old, I was like, uh, what is this? Right. Um, so it sat in my room for three months before I finally picked it up and like, I had it like, instead of holding it right, it was like sitting flat on my lap and I'm just like, like a dobro type of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like playing notes. And I remember I like figuring out, uh, like just the, the like little melody line from low rider. Oh, and I yeah. was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, Oh, I, I get how this works. I, you just press down here and it's a note. Mm-hmm. And I kind of went on from there and started started playing that more. Eventually, I had a friend. We used to ride BMX. And he had a Harmony Electric that had five tuners on it. it was like the other one was just gone. <laughs> uh, I traded him a bike frame for that. Um, so I had that for a bit. And the electronics worked. Probably sounded like crap, but I didn't know any better at the time. Is this like an old school Harmony or is it one of like the 90s kind of strap? It, yeah. it, was a, it was a 90s. It was like modeled after one of the old old school ones, like mm-hmm. just pick up in the middle position. Um, had like a, you know, cover over the bridge. Gotcha. Um, but you played that for a little bit. And then I traded that to a guy in my neighborhood who had a Samick Strat copy that had all six strings on it. But the electronics did not work. <laughs> okay. So from there... I finally got my first like real guitar and it was a Epiphone goth SG special from media play, which in the Midwest was a CD store that sold some like entry level guitars. I know exactly which guitar you're talking about. Yeah. And it was, you know, for what I remember, it was cool and I had it for a few months and then I decided I'm going to try to do a guitar spin and did not know that strap locks were an invention. Mm-hmm. And it fell right on the headstock, and the neck shattered into about a million pieces. Uh, but that was a very good thing to have happen to me because from there, I still had the strat that didn't work electronically. Mm-hmm. And my mom's boyfriend was an electrician, so he's like, "We can figure this out." So we Frankenstein'd, like, took all the electronics from the SG and went to the strat, and I had to like file out the pick guard to make the pickups fit in there. But we got mm-hmm. it to work, and then I had a functioning guitar and the smallest bit of guitar tech knowledge. Right. And from there I had this obsession with just working on guitars constantly. And in the years since I've learned from just some of the best out there and that's fun. Like I, I had a, uh, when I still lived in Ohio, I had a small repair business. And when I moved out to the Bay area and we were living there for a while, I had, it's pretty successful repair business, just running out of a friend's studio. And I just, I love working on guitars as much as I like, playing them mm-hmm. that's very cool so then how did that lead into you actually like playing with bands and stuff um so my first real band because i've up up for a long period of time i was i'm a drummer and i also play guitar got it and uh a friend of mine rob from high school we jammed at one point and i was playing drums and then I would like grab his guitar, and like, oh, play something like this. And he was like, the, the next day at school, he like, 
I overheard him like talking crap about me. Uh oh. But it was a good thing because he's like, yeah, I don't know why he's so focused on being a drummer. He's a way better guitar player. <laughs> and I was like, you know, maybe a little upset, but then I was like, maybe he's right. Mm-hmm. And because I have being in band and stuff, like I can read drum music and all that stuff. And like I can read rhythms. Uh, playing guitar, I taught myself, but it's like there's enough resources out there to be able to figure it out. And mm-hmm. so in my head, because I knew the technical side of, of drumming and like how to read music and all that, I was like, oh, I'm better. No, I'm not. So uh, <laughs> took that to heart and then started playing. And I eventually joined a band that were some of my friends. Their band broke up and they started a new band. They needed a bass player. And I was like, it's close enough. I have a bass. Right. Um, so I did that. And then, uh, you know, we started playing shows, which were freshmen or sophomores in high school. We're playing like, you know, whatever, like, oh, this this church will let hardcore and punk bands play. We're going to play there and you know, that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. eventually we got mad at our singer guitar player because he was not loading his gear. And his gear was a 30 watt crate combo amp. Oh, boy. Which. Now I'm like he he didn't pick up a thing that's that weighs ten pounds and we were like that's it he's out of the band. Um, but well, hey, from there, if he can't even do that, yeah, you know, he also just wasn't very good. Great guy, not you know his passion wasn't playing and singing. So fair enough. Uh, from there, I moved to guitar, and from there it's just been guitar nonstop ever since. Nonstop ever since. So when did you have like a progression of bands? It's, it's been interesting talking to some people who have came into bands that were very successful, you know, prior to their entry into the band. What did that look like for you? Um, and do you mean like me coming into Acacia Strain? Yeah. So um, it was weird because Acacia Strain was a band that I listened to in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, like I would... I had the record 3750 and I would listen to that like on the bus on the way to school. Of course. And, we all did, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> and then our 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 band back in the day, we would like, you know, play car bomb at band practice or like the beginning of brown noise, like, oh cool. Um and yes, years playing through bands, it it, it kind of does that thing where your first band falls apart, but there's the couple guys that want to keep playing music. They join another band. I was that guy that just kept like all right, well, this isn't working. I'm not giving up on it. So I had a band called 1931. We toured as best we could over, over the course of like five years. And it just a uh, series of mistakes really that led to it just not working out, like trusting the wrong people, doing all that, you know, mm-hmm. the things that happen, uh, especially mid 2000s. There's a lot of like new labels popping up like, oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to sign you guys and nothing's going to happen. It's going to be great. Um so yeah. that fell apart. I filled in for a little while with for this band from Cincinnati called Rose Funeral and just did not get along with the guys. And then uh, when I ended up quitting the band, they like stole my trailer and all this stuff. So I was like, Jeez. oh, yeah. And it was like not – it wasn't worth a lot, so it wasn't worth doing the whole like I'm pressing charges or whatever. I was like, okay, whatever. And then uh, the guitar player for the band Oceano – um, had left the band and I saw that at just the right time. And I was like, you know, 1931, our old band, we'd, pl- we'd done some weekend stuff with them. Mm-hmm. I'll send them a message on MySpace. Uh, and I yes. sent it and Adam, their singer, 
he was on there. He got on MySpace specifically to turn messages off because he's like, oh, we're going to get flooded. And he saw that and he's like, oh, hey, I remember you. Um, how's it going? Like, send if you want to send some videos of you playing the songs, do it. And I was like, okay. So mm-hmm. did that and ended up joining the band, was with the band for about three years. And for me, I love those guys, but I think a lot of the decisions that were being made with the band were kind of different from what I would want to do and the direction that the band was taking. I was like, I think we should go this way. They wanted to go that way. Um, and I wasn't like, I'm going to quit, but I had the opportunity for a case of strain where we had played some shows together and done some tours. And for the longest time they'd had like fill in guitar players. Um, because DL was, you know, he was the guitar player and he wasn't, didn't quit. He just wasn't touring anymore. Mm-hmm. And, the opportunity came up because the fill-ins were leaving and i was like i'll do this but i'm not going to quit my band to be a fill-in if i'm joining if i'm coming on board i have to be a writing real member of the band and everybody was down for it so nice now 10 years later here i am right i was gonna say it's been quite a while since then did you have any i mean probably not because you had a lot of experience playing with all kinds of different people but did you have any like trepidation about getting in and being able to fill the shoes or was it like, well, the has been out for a while now. So how did that that feel? I didn't. Um, it, there was obviously that little bit of intimidation and still to this day, there's people that's like, I miss DL. And it's what I say to that is he sings for bad wolves. Go listen to his music. Right. He's doing it. He's doing his thing. He didn't Mm -hmm. disappear. You can still listen to the records that he, you know, he helped write. Um, but I think it's like, the big thing with, I think, guitar playing that's important is confidence and knowing, like, if I didn't believe in myself to know that I can bring in the right thing to a band, I'm not going to try to be like, let me join. And so there's people that do that where they want to, like, you know, when when Tom left the band, they were like, we had people, like, I have professional gear, and they had the confidence but not the talent. Like, we already knew who we were going <laughs> with, but you'll still go watch a video and you're like, do you need to practice? Just practice guitar. Oh, yeah. Um Yeah. And, but it's like, I, I know that like, this is, I, you know, eat, sleep, breathe guitar. It's all I want to do. So I felt like I could fill the shoes. I knew the direction the band had been moving and I knew the changes that needed to be made, like mm-hmm. to keep everything interesting. Cause you don't want to just be like, all right, we do tune down. So let's tune down again and let's do you like, there's a certain point in like heavy where you can't just do it heavier than that, you have to do something different. Yes. Um, you can only go so low before you're all just playing bass. Right. And my, my my example of that I like to use is like, you know, a lot of people don't like Metallica's Load and Reload. Mm-hmm. I love those records, but it's also, think about the Black Album is so heavy. They, there had to have been some conversation where it's like, we're not writing anything heavier than that. At this point, we're just going to start like kind of rehashing our same stuff. So we have to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, I like to think that we didn't do the route where we polarized a bunch of people. We still held on to our sound. Um, but that's the thing is you got to say, not necessarily how do I go heavier or how do we make this one better than the last? You go, all right, how do we keep growing? How do we do something different that still sounds like us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you, you almost, I don't want to say this is universally true, but I know that 
as a fan, sometimes when I hear a band that I've loved that's traditionally been very heavy, you go like, all right, our next record is going to be our most, our heaviest and most melodic yet. And then I'm like, oh no, is this the grunge, the post grunge record that you guys are about to make? <laughs> it makes yeah. you go like, ooh. And sometimes it turns out not to be the case, but oftentimes when those right. are the words, it's like, uh oh. I just, I like not putting any sort of pressure on the listener at all, not, or, or, or pressure on ourselves by saying, this is, I hate when bands are like, this is the heaviest thing we've ever done. It's like, you know, that's, it's, a, it's subjective. Right. And you're also just saying that because that's the newest thing you're doing. Um, it feels like, the best. I like everything we're doing and I, I like to put out the stuff that we're happy with. Mm-hmm. Like if we're done with the record and I'm like, oh, I am happy with how this sounds. It's what I want to listen to. Then yeah. I like to think that our fans are smart enough to be like, to trust us to do what is best for our band and that they're also going to like, but it's never been like a, you know, I know lots of bands like, Oh, we, you know, we got to have a good, the good mosh part here. The kids are going to love this. I was like, yeah, do you love it? Do you like to play it? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that'll translate, right? If, right. If, if you're having fun doing it, then it, it translates very well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I also like, I don't like describing the music before it comes out. When we did that record, it comes in waves. It was so different for us that we just were like, let's just be like, it's out. Because if Here we say, mm-hmm. if we announce like there's a record coming this far in advance and no, and nobody knows what it's going to sound like, they're going to in their head be like, oh, I hope it sounds like this or I hope it's like this. And then when it's not, even if they like it, it's still it's not what they envision. So it's disappointing. It's like mm-hmm. the it's like the Star Wars thing when people the, the new movies coming out and they're like, oh, they I hope they do this with the story. And then right. it doesn't <laughs> It's like this movie sucked because it wasn't what I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. So. But they'd like a lot of the stuff. It was just surprise. Here it is. Yeah. Hi, I'm Vincent, and I'm here to talk about the Merrick X. My dad's always going on and on about how cool Maris is. He really went off on one about the Mercury X the other day. He said something about a 4,800 hertz sample rate and 99 preset locations and 33 banks. And something along the lines of the most advanced reverb pedal ever devised by man? That's all true, but I only care about one thing. This pedal sounds sick. So make sure you check out the Mercury X and all the other fine products at Maris.us, as well as fine retailers worldwide. All right, Dad, now can I have my pocky? How exactly do artists get their music on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, Tidal, all these services? How in the world do you get your music there? Well, in the past, you had to use something called a record label. But these days, you can use DistroKid. DistroKid is the absolute easiest way to get your music up on streaming services. And it's the most affordable way to do so. Not only do plans start at $22.99 for the entire year, that's less than 2 bucks a month, DistroKid also does not take a cut of your streaming revenue, unlike some other services out there. Even better if you sign up by going to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. That's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. One more time, that's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. You'll get 30% off. That's right, 30% off. They're already extremely reasonable prices. So go to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid and get your music out there. 
Yeah, and it's that weird balance of trying to write music that you know the people that are there supporting you want to hear that also fulfills that creative side. There's always this balance because I'm sure there are things you'd like to explore that don't really fit within the context of that band. Right. Uh, you know, and you have to try to find a way to either shoehorn it in in a way that makes sense or sometimes just a totally separate outlet. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. Um, so I have, I, I like just writing at home, even if it's stuff that I'm never going to use. I have a mountain of just random songs that were like, I'm going to write something like Stone Temple Pilots or I'm going to write something in the style of, you know, typo negative or whatever. And it's, it's cool to like exercise that part of your brain for writing uh, mm-hmm. because there are times that that will come in handy for your main band. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I like to do is listen to something that is completely outside of our box. that like, doesn't sound like it's at all. Find what do I like about this song? What, like what from a guitar perspective speaks to me? How can I take that idea and morph it and make it fit our, our music? Like, um, one, like when I'm given guitar or songwriting lessons, I always talk about, um, don't fear the reaper by blue oyster cult. Mm-hmm. Um, that song specifically it's most of the guitars clean the whole time, you know, singing doesn't sound like a case strain at all in any way, shape or form, but listening through one of my favorite songs and I go, okay, what, what is standing out guitar wise? And it's, there's a G string in that song that rings like the whole time. It's just like droning through the whole song. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that's what's doing it for me. It gives this whole song, like sort of a voice that carries through. How can I make that work for us? And then we, over time, we started doing a lot of stuff where there's just droning notes, like stuff that rings while there's other stuff playing. And that all came from that song from, from me at least is, it sounds nothing like it, but that's where the idea was born in my brain like okay i can i can use that mm-hmm. and that's what i think is cool about music is there's there's stuff you can lift from anything and change around and make it work for your own music that doesn't sound like you took the idea from somewhere else yeah yeah it's, i i noticed a weird thing when i i did a solo record and there was a lot of comparisons that were drawn to things that i i, I found out that i liked but you know, there, there was a lot of comparisons drawn to bands that I'd never really listened to or artists that I'd never really listened to. And then when people were like, this sounds like X, Y, Z, I don't, I don't know what they sound like. I guess I'll go find out. You know, this sounds, a lot of it was like, this sounds like explosions in the sky or this sounds like this, that I'm like, well, I've, I know of them, but I've never sat down and listened to them. And then finding out, oh, those people were right. And so then it was a process of trying to dig through my own influences to figure out how how that happened. And right. it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing when you start diving into your, your own past, trying to dissect yeah, your own you can, output. <laughs> you can see where certain things like where influences came from to start this other band that you might not have listened to, but you're like, Oh, we have the same influences. So they both mm-hmm. led us to this place. Yep. It's like yep. you listen to terror and there's like, there's so many just like Hetfield, like fast chug riffs. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, clearly you guys like Metallica. Mm-hmm. And this day and age, it's, you know, I feel like when we were growing up, there was like this segmentation in music, whether it was down to like subgenres, like, oh, I like, you know, terror or hate breed style hardcore versus street punk versus, you know, 
yeah. traditional heavy metal like, versus black metal, whatever. But even down to like, oh, you, oh, you know, if you're like a metalhead, you're not supposed to listen to hip hop. You're not supposed to listen to pop. Like, and I feel like that's just evaporated now, which is, yeah. I think, a very positive thing. It's great, especially when you realize that there's so many things from all of these different areas of music, different genres that can cross over without sounding like, you know, you're just mashing two things together. You can make it work. Like you can take um, pop structure and say, how do we turn this into a heavy metal song? And then you get something like uh, Crippling Poison off of Slow Decay. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's just, it's like a dance part. Right. <laughs> just the whole way through. When you see it now with like heavy metal covers or hardcore covers of pop songs, you're like, wait a minute. Is everything a pop song? What's going yeah. on? <laughs> is, is there a reason it's called pop? Because it's popular? Because people tend to like it for some reason? But yeah. Uh, so this is supposedly a guitar show where maybe we talk about it sometimes. And obviously you're very obsessed, as you outlined. Yes. How has your, what's your gear or tone journey looked like? I know I have sort of <coughs> a, a journey in my head with how I came to like the things I like. What did that look like for you? Okay, so back in the day when I finally, when I started, hit that shift point where I was focusing more on guitar, um, that's when I was like, okay, I want a good guitar. And at the time, I was really into CKY. All right. And yeah. like, I want a Parker. Of course, Parker's a real one, very expensive. There was a shop near my house that had a Parker P40. They had a brand new one that was $800 and they had a used one that looked brand new that was half price. And I was like, oh my God, I want that so bad. And my whole family pitched in that year for my birthday, like got the Parker and I was like, sick. Um, so from there, I'm, I'm playing on that. Then I eventually, that's shortly after is when we kicked the singer guitar player out of the band. And I then was like, okay, it's time to buy a real amp, which I'm in high school. So I bought a, went to music go round and I got a PV double XL. Yes. <laughs> solid state, just the loudest, squealiest thing. Mm -hmm. Got that. And then a Randall 412 that had like the Jaguar speakers in it, which mm -hmm. not terrible, not, not the best thing in the world, but affordable it's, so it's solid yeah great for a kid in high school absolutely um, and then our other guitar player he's like i gotta get a half sack too and of course he he ends up with a block letter and uh oh well however it's this point 2004 2005 and that block letter still had the original tubes in it and it sounded mm. like total crap yeah it was it needed love yeah and he didn't he was not one to take care of his stuff he was uh you know, still a friend of mine, but he was one of those guys that like he would only practice guitar at band practice. There was no like at home, like I'm gonna play. So that thing was just shrill and brittle, like the whole time he had it. Got it. Um I hope that wherever it ended up, somebody was like, let's get this thing sounding like it should. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, so I had that and I pretty quickly thereafter switched to a I you know, I bought a sixty five oh five plus. Like the as soon as those came out, I was like that's the one. I it was still, we were still in that era of like everyone's like oh triple rectifier. That's the way to go. Mm -hmm. And so in my head, I'm like, all right, I need to try a triple rectifier. But there were no stores that carried them. Um, at the time, it was like I feel like boutique shops only really had them in stock. 
we had a guitar center and a Sam Ash like a half mile away from each other and neither of them had one. Sure. And somebody says, oh, try this. And it was the 6505 plus and they're like, oh, well, it's, it's like the new version of the 5150. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, oh, well, that's what our other guitar player has and it doesn't sound good. I'm, a, I'm in high school. I don't know really, really know much about retubing. So I try this thing out and I'm like blown away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, those are great. So I had that for a while and I'd also, uh, I'd switched, I, I had done the, the, the high school kid thing where you're circling the guitars you want and musician's friend. <laughs> oh, and yes, I really wanted the, the mid two thousands red with the Avalon all around it. EC 1000. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, I gotta have one. They, they're so cool. And then I played one at Sam Ash, hated it, hated the next shape, hated the tunematic bridge, all that. I was much more picky at that time than I am now. Like now I'm just like, I can make it play fine. But at the time <laughs> I was like, this is, a, this is the, not what I like at all. Keep in mind, I've been playing a Parker up to that point. So they're very different. Totally different feels. Yeah. And then, uh, in the similar price range was the Ibanez RG 1570 prestige. And so I was like, let me try that. And it, I fell in love immediately. And, uh, this is the point in time where the prestige was, it was like 750 brand new. Which wow. Is unheard of now. Of course. But bought that. And then uh, from there was like Ibanez all the way for a long time. I'd, I'd gotten lots of guitars over the years, especially I, there was a point where I worked at that Sam Ash and our boss didn't care if we just bought stuff that came in. So <laughs> people would bring guitars in and I would just buy stuff I wanted and then I would buy stuff that I would like fix up and resell that's also like me getting better at repair stuff because i'm like oh i can clean this thing up and make it play nice um so was playing that for a while and i really got the itch for seven string and at this point it's still like 2005 maybe early 2006 like i'd already been on like the seven string.org um forum for a while, just like, oh, I hope I can get one someday. Because um, bands had started using them again. And I'm like, okay, cool. They're not just a new metal thing. I can do something with this. And a buddy of mine had a Ibanez RG7421XL. Mm-hmm. That was the 27-inch scale length RG fixed bridge. And he's like, yeah, I bought this when it came out in like 99 or 2000. It's been sitting in my closet. I'll sell it to you for 200 bucks, And bought that and i have been focused on extended range stuff ever since i still play uh, sixes but the the seven string world was was really new to me uh and now i've found myself like i I still primarily play sixes yeah but um the seven string world was like very intimidating to me at first and i don't know why because after i got one and spent not that much time with it i was like there's just one more string yeah uh, but like for some reason, and you'll you talk to any traditionally six string player and they'll say the same thing. Oh, I don't know what I'm doing with six strings. What would I do with seven? That's yeah. like the classic response and exactly how I thought about it. Did you have the same trepidation? Um, no, I feel like I realistically put in maybe 30 minutes with that guitar and it just I understood. It was like, oh, OK, cool. I still have a six string guitar here. Right. In standard. Um, the only pre- I can see it being like difficult for the people to do like the wraparound thumb thing, sure. Like, but I don't. I never did that. So, um, 
it wasn't that hard of a switch and it, it opened up a lot of doors for me as far as just my playing because tuning down like the, the six strings we were tuning down to drop b so all the lead stuff was very kind of floppy mm-hmm. um so getting a seven string and having that standard tuned guitar still there and then just doing drop a i was like yeah. oh this is cool i can do a lot of stuff on this and it makes sense when we talk about switching over to eight strings that's where i'm like i don't i don't really like eight strings that much mm-hmm. um i do and i don't i don't like most of the stuff that i write i will write on the seven string and if it's something that will translate to an eight then it becomes an eight string song but i like those for the big chords you can do if i'm trying yes. to write riffs i just end up ripping off the sugar so <laughs> i we all tend do. i tend to not do that yeah I got my first eight string this year and it's been a, a very eye-opening experience. Actually, it's uh, right there. Whoop. There. I get confused. There it is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I think they're they're cool. I think the thing for me is like six to a seven, it still feels like a guitar neck. And once you get to an eight, that's when your hand starts to do this like You gotta flatten flat. out. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit harder. It is. It is. This one's uh this one's a a multi-scale. It's the, I always forget the numbers. It's a LTD M1008. And uh, I was shocked how much I did like it. It was definitely an experimental, like, oh, here we go. I don't know. Oh, yeah, for sure. But it, it's a very nice guitar, and I'm I'm playing it more and more. I still love my seven string. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've really, for a guy that started out on just Gibson's, you know, Gibson scale length six string guitars, vintage style next half the time it's been a weird progression going into now i'm obsessed with baritone six strings and seven strings yeah starting to get obsessed with the eight string now it's like i it's i like all of them it's it's there's no one thing where i'm like this is uh, there's people i know that like only play like only play less fall only play this scale length and there's they all do different things so it's kind of to me it's like having like a wall of different tools Mm -hmm. Um, like my favorite guitar really um, like I have a 77, uh, Les Paul custom, uh, from right after the, the Ibanez lawsuit era that I found mm-hmm. on Craigslist. And it's like thing weighs 12 pounds. It's heavy and it just, it plays incredibly. Like I did, um, as soon as I got it, like I had, I did a front level and crown and all that stuff. And it's just, there's something about it. I've put it up against like some really high-end Les Pauls, and it's just, it wins every time. Nice, nice. But that's yeah. just like, I like I like my heavy metal guitars, but I also like the classics. There's there's not really much that I'm like, I hate this. I hate this guitar. I mean, that's how I've pretty much went about collecting. Les Pauls are the thing I have the most of, but most of the time I'm not looking for another Les Paul. And even then I've got, they're as different as Les Pauls can be. You know, I've got the Junior, a Special, and a Custom. And I'm not really looking for any more Les Pauls. Like I, I, I look for the thing that fills the hole in the collections. Like right yeah. now, I'm like, hmm, I don't have a Gretsch. Like I could use a Gretsch. It's always yeah. I'm always looking for what I don't have, not another version of the same thing I do have. There's that, and then I'm also, I used to have like here's the li- like oh these are my like holy grail guitars, or I'm looking for one of these. Now I'm just like, if something catches my eye, and I'm like, oh that's really cool. I've, I think I, I think I want that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the last times we were going to Chicago, there was a PVT 60. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, 
that had uh, been modified. So it had like a new pick guard made, but only one pickup, which I'm a fan of that. And the price was right on it. And I'm like, oh, if that, okay. It was on the website. I'm like, if it's there, when we show up, I'm picking it up. And of course, somebody bought it. But those are guitars that I'm like, I, they're cool. Yeah. And since I'm at the point now where like I can make any guitar playable, so I'm not, I'm not like, oh, I have to play it first. I'm just like, no, that looks cool. I like it. Let's let's do it. Have you played one of those before? Yes, they weigh a ton. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're fun guitars, though. But they don't. The weight doesn't bother me. I'm I'm kind of fine with heavier guitars. Uh, but the then I wanted. I was gonna buy one. There was actually two that were here at a shop in Portland. I was like, I'm ba- I'm going there. And I'm buying one of those. Love the sound. Love how they look, and like they're incredibly versatile yeah. too. But and this is one of the first times I think I've ever experienced. Actually, no, there's two times with the T60 and with a Hagstrom. I was like, this neck is, this is too thin for me. Like I was, I, I didn't think that that would be a problem. And maybe yeah. now that I have some thinner neck stuff in the stable and I've, I've gotten a little more used to it, I'd feel a little differently about it. But I remember thinking like, this is going to hurt me yeah. after a while. The neck was so thin, but it was really nice and it was fast and it was cool. So I wanted to like it. And I even had the money. I was like, ah, man, maybe I don't love these as much as I thought. So, yeah. And a a fun, a little fact about the PVT series is those were the first production made guitars that use CNC. I just found that out the other day, like literally three days ago. I I read that. And and when they were, they were released them, you could kind of do like a semi custom thing where you could spec yours out and they'll just make it for you, which is Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. I want to try the bass. I wonder what the bass sounds like. The basses are great. Um, Yeah. Our friends in the band Orthodox, their bassist Shiloh, he's got a couple of them, and they're pretty cool. They're just they're machines. They're built to last, mm-hmm. which is cool to see. Yeah, it's weird how you know, PVs. I feel like having a sort of a gen, just in general a resurgence in in popularity. There was a time where PV was in the corner of every middle school band class and just kind of, eh, yeah, whatever. I'll get something better later. Yeah. And now, probably thanks in a large part to Josh Homme being like, I use this all over Songs for the Deaf. Yeah, the, the little practice amp. Yeah, a little decade. Yeah. They're, they're having, I think, a, a general resurgence. And, and there's been this contingent of PV players of from the guitars, amps, and even to the, the pedals. Uh, that a lot of people don't even know they made pedals, but they do. Their chorus pedal is amazing. Huh. Uh, they, I've been, I keep talking about it, and people keep telling me to stop talking about it. Like the prices are gonna go up. Stop talking about yeah. PV stuff. Well, and it's what what drives me crazy with PV is like, you know how they kind of how everything is running for them as a current currently operating company is just mm-hmm. like it's get weird. It, get it together, like yeah. I remember seeing the undercover boss thing where like a bunch of people ended up getting laid off and it's like there you have a USA plant, you have a product that people like just charge more for it. People will pay for it. People mm-hmm. don't want uh, an imported 6505. No. Like I had my 6505 and then I had a combo amp that was one of the ones that were made in China and it was just it's kind of junky. It just didn't um, hold up. No. And you know that was just something I've, I had at home to play. Oh, it was so just it was, like you weren't even beaten on it. You weren't taking no, it on tour. It was just kind of like, eh. Um, I just think when when you have like a certain threshold level of quality, you have to maintain that. 
sure you can you can outsource but make different products overseas that are more budget friendly don't try to like bring these like high level don't take the 6505 plus and like let's make that somewhere else or like don't cheapen the, the quality of the stuff you already have we are brought to you today by Sweetwater, specifically the Gear Exchange. You may have heard about this. This is a place where you can go to buy and sell your used gear. Maybe you got a pedal over there that's just kind of collecting dust. Maybe there's something you've been eyeing from the Sweetwater catalog. Well, right now is a great time to turn that unused gear into something you're actually going to use. Even better, if you sell on the Gear Exchange, you can keep 100% of the sale as long as you choose a Sweetwater gift card as your payout method. That is not too shabby, because let's be honest, most of this buying and selling we do is just to fund new gear purchases, and that is a great way to reach a wide variety of customers and keep 100% in your pocket, or rather, on your pedal board. So go check out the Sweetwater Gear Exchange and turn that unused gear into something that's actually going to help you write that next huge riff. Hello there. I'd like to introduce you to your new best friend, the Chase Bliss Audio Lossy. Lossy is a collaboration between Chase Bliss and Good Hertz. It's meant to give you some control over those weird digital artifacts that come with very compressed audio. You're hearing it right now. All the changes that are taking place are strictly coming from my playing dynamics. I'm just interacting with the pedal and letting it do its thing. And some true stereo goodness. If you'd like some more details about Lossy, I invite you to head over to chaseflintsaudio.com. I think you're going to like what you find. Yeah, I think that what you said is, is very true, because if you've established a reputation for even just one product being really, really good, and that starts to slip, it doesn't take very long before people are like, ugh. I mean, it's happened in the auto world a bunch of times. The yeah. Ford Explorer almost put Ford out of business in the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> I, I remember the, the tires exploding or something. Yeah, Firestone. Like the, uh, uh, some, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were like um, having rollovers or whatever. But yeah, the Ford, bad the Ford Exploder. <laughs> um, but yeah, the uh, and when it comes to the guitar and gear world, if you have this like high-level piece of equipment and you start cheaping out on it people aren't buying the cheaper one they're focusing on like we want this mm -hmm. we're just going to buy it on the used market and right you see those prices skyrocket while no one is buying the new stuff that you're manufacturing mm -hmm. yeah, and then they're worry. sitting there like why is this happening and it's like well you did this to yourself yeah don't worry behringer will clone it at some point if you want a cheaper one so yeah just just keep making the good one i gotta say man i got one of those uh the hyper fuzz Oh yeah, Behringer's. I got it. It was it was fourteen dollars on sale on Sweetwater. And I was like, "Yep, <laughs> let's do it." That's, I, I mean, we we did our we made the gray boom gray bloom pedal with uh, abominable electronics. It mm -hmm. was modeled after the um, 
I think the 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 hyper fuzz, the yeah, the boss, the, the, the boss one, yeah. And this thing is d- damn close. I don't know that I play shows with it because of the plastic housing, but it sounds so good. I'm gonna send you a video that I made. <laughs> I also got involved in that Sweetwater fourteen dollar fuzz thing. Bought a few, <laughs> bought one to to keep, yeah. one to one to give away, which. For some reason, the person who won has never, never responded to me. So I don't know what I'm going to do with that at some point. But and one I torture tested and made yeah. a video and made a video of, and uh, it was shocking. I was completely shocked at how much abuse this thing took and okay. s- still worked. That said, it failed one very crucial test that a guitar pedal should survive. Stepping um, on it. <laughs> st- I stomped on it. Now, it, I stomped on it in a way that would, you know, I was kind of trying to do like, you're playing a show, you're feeling really good, and you step on it harder than you need to, but not like, I didn't, I wasn't like, I'm going to crush this pedal. Yeah. I was like, I'm just like going to stomp on it pretty hard. And it it didn't hold up well to that, but it still functioned. And uh, I threw it off my house. I did a whole bunch of stuff. It was, uh, I won't spoil the whole thing. There's some, there's some really stupid things that I did to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we're our band. Like, we're, we're we're a band that encourages stage divers, all that kind of stuff. And then our singer is throwing water all over the place all the time. So I have I have my Kemper controller, and that's it. No other pedals because I've I've had to replace enough over the years. Um, people just love to jump off of your stuff, and it gets wet. Mm-hmm. We've got our our foot controllers. Are we have like a shower curtain that's cut up and like wrapped around them to keep them dry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. interesting. <laughs> well, so what does the touring rig look like these days? Um, so we've got for for guitar, we've got a big like a mother case that's got the three. So we use those SKB like <coughs> fly rig things, mm-hmm. and we have so the inserts of those are in this big case where I've got um, Line Six G ninety wireless that I've had since two thousand ten that mm-hmm. still works beautifully nice um then just the kemper power rack okay and uh mike he's got i think he has the i want to say he's the sennheiser wireless but pretty much the same setup um and the back of that we've got uh btpa made just for ease of use so we're not reaching all the way back in there every night when you're we don't have much space so there's like a rear access panel that has like just you know, all of our outputs on there mm-hmm. where we just send, send that to the board and we used to mic cabs and also do that. But now we just, we just run into the cabs for stage volume. We're not micing them because move around a lot too. And I'm the one that will always back into the cab and like make the mic go all sideways. <laughs> sure. So works pretty well for that. It's simple. It's clean. Um, for a very long time I used, like I said, 5150s, 6505s, um, pedals and all that. And it's just, the Kemper works. There's not, I don't have to sit and mess with the gate every show. Like using like a, a tube rig, as much as I love how the, love the sound, it's like you have that 5150. It's <laughs> <laughs> sure. just going at all times you have to deal with. And then there's like, oh, well, this room is a little more reflect, reflective. I'm getting more feedback here. So, I mean, I got to adjust the decimator and, it's nice to not have to to not have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, 
still use real amps on the albums, but live it's just it's very nice to plug in and be like, hey, it sounds the same as it did last night. Cool. Right. So the the Kemper, what do they call them? Profiles. Yeah. The profiles you're using, are they profiles of your stuff or are they other ones that you've other ones? Yeah. Um we we always have like a profile of whatever the newest record we've done is. Mm-hmm. Um and it never sounds good live. Um oh, it sounds, interesting. it's just it's it's weird because it's the whole thing of like a live mix versus a studio mix are very different and what you want to cut through in a live mix is different, especially based on the room. So it's it doesn't sound bad, but it's never like you're like, Oh wow, this sounds just like the record when you're on stage. Sure. It sounds great at home, but uh so yeah, we I've I've never myself made a profile in my life. Um, mainly because I'm like, there's somebody smarter who has done a better job at whatever I'm going to capture. <laughs> sure. Um, so we're using right now, um, on this tour, we, it's the, the main profile is like a rectifier. Oh, okay. Um, which, you know, I'm sure it's whatever it was. I had the silicon diode switch flipped. So you have that really tight, just instead of being like kind of loose and spongy, mm-hmm. um, Sounds really good, but most it's, there's usually been a 50 on 50 somewhere in the mix. Um, this time we're running that, and it's working. I'm sure we'll change it again, but um, we, we played in uh, L.A. the other day, and Javier from uh, Animals as Leaders was like, that's the most crushing tone I've ever heard, and I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> <clears throat> like, hey, it, coming from you. All right. So, that sounds Because I was a little unsure, because we, we use in-ears now, too, and so hearing it just in your ears and not coming through the PA or like it's it's pretty dry. So you're like, ah, I don't know, is this good? But it was apparently good. apparently it's apparently it's doing it. Hey, perfect. That's that's as long as the crowd's happy, right? Yes. As long as you can do your job and the crowd's happy and you're feeling it, that's that's all that matters. Did you always play with in ears or is that a relatively new? Thing? Um, we started doing that pretty much after shows came back from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, it was funny. We were. At Zach from the Ghost Inside's house, like right before the tour full on got canceled. Actually, it got canceled for the pandemic when we were at his house. But we were like, nobody knew how bad everything was going to be. So we had like one show. We were like, okay, we're going to play half capacity at Chain Reaction in Anaheim. We're going to do an early show and a late show. Mm-hmm. And then everyone's going to go home. Um, and, every, you know, we're like, okay, we're going to go home and we'll see everybody in two weeks, which not the case. But Not the case. When we were at Zach's house, the Ghost Inside had gifted us their old in-ear rig because they had upgraded, and they're like, "This stuff's still really good." We just got like we got new stuff, and we're not playing shows as much anymore because of you know just life. And so we're like, "Oh, cool! All we have to do is you know get molds and mm-hmm. buy, buy ears." Cool. Um, pandemic happened, and we sat. The stuff sat for like two years, and we we realized that the the rig that we had, it was it was all uh, the old frequencies that were no longer allowed to be used because of the five oh, G rollout. I forgot about that. Yeah, and we had like missed the window to like get everything replaced for free by like a month. No. Um, so at that point, we'd already bought all this other stuff. So it's like I guess we're just building a whole rig. Um. So we did that, and it's just it's made such a difference being able to one hear everything on stage wherever you're at. Having it be a much lower volume, um, which will just improve longevity of your hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and just Kevin is a tight drummer, but having a click so we don't have to have like 
you know, little hi-hat, like foot hi-hat count-ins or anything like that. You can just go. That's nice. Um, and like on this tour, we're doing like a light show and everything. So having that synced up with like a logic session to where we all, everything is happening in time. It's a better show. It's better for the crowd. They have a better experience. So mm-hmm. I yeah. can't see myself doing it without ears at this point, which I did for decades. And now I'm like, how the hell did I do that? There was one show where I had like an issue and I took one ear out because I was like, oh, some guys do one ear in, one one ear out. And it was immediately so loud. I was like, how did I do this for any amount of time? <laughs> yeah, I think I've never I'm not a like a live show playing guy but i remember when uh, my old band switched to doing in-ears primarily just for practice because we like to practice at full volume because who doesn't yeah to do that you know and doing that and then finally being able to really truly hear everybody the for the first time ever when playing live i was like what what has everybody everybody been doing for like the last 50 years yeah (laughs) this is crazy and you go to your other guitar player and like what are you playing right there (laughs) that's that's not right at all yeah well you can even like even when you're jam just jamming and practicing you can just be like oh wait wait wait, hold on everybody and then or just like talk to one person like hey you're off on this or i'm off on this or and you can just say it and they'll everyone hears it and everyone oh whoops you're right we're not playing that song we're playing this song right it's just so made so many things so much more efficient and then yeah not even to talk about saving your hearing so you can hear everything clearer and better and yeah you're not going to go deaf as quickly which is important and it makes it better for me too like there's usually for me historically been like a good five or ten minutes after we get off stage where i'm just like i don't know where i'm at Mm -hmm. just oh yeah the adrenaline of the show plus like the loud noises and all of a sudden everything kind of coming back to normal that's kind of shortened that period quite a bit because I can still I get off stage and I'm like, hey, how's it going? Right. Um, or I'd have to go and like stand away from people because I don't want to come off as like rude where I'm just like, what? <laughs> what did you just say to me? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, recently and you were talking about playing to the click and, and the light show and all that. I just recently had a glimpse into the lighting world. Shout out Carlos. Uh, he does uh, lighting for uh, August Burns Red. And they were just here in Portland. He's like, you want to see how all this works? I was like, yeah, I have no idea what any of that is. And seeing the behind the scenes, you know, it was kind of it was kind of funny. And I know not all bands are like this, but, you know, everything's synced up and timed out and like ready to go. So at some sh- it made me think about some shows that I've been to that have big light shows and there's people yelling out requests. And I'm like, you have no idea that, that that's just not going to happen because everything's already decided. Right. <laughs> Like, uh, I don't not to ruin the experience for anybody, but um, it was just interesting to see how orchestrated everything really has to be if you want to put a show on yeah. like that. Because you like that's when we play shows, we usually there's there's like the house light guy or whatever, and like what do you what do you guys want? And we're just like just a solid color, just wash the stage, don't do anything else mm-hmm. because you typically have somebody who's trying to follow along in your set who doesn't really know the songs. Right. And like, you'll have like our song beast on this tour, like we're opening up with that and it's just a lot of feedback, a sample, and then like some guitar by itself before everything kicks in. Mm -hmm. And so you have like your house person will turn the lights down like, Oh cool. And then when it kicks in, they're playing catch up. And so you have like this good, like everyone's going for a good two seconds before the lights come back on. And you're like, that 
just felt weird. Right. That was so we're just like, don't do it. Um, (laughs) but now everything's programmed and Corinne, who she's out with a fit for an autopsy and doing our lights as well. And she's, Mm -hmm. so you, you have like the stuff we travel with and then she's also running like the house lights to add to the show and she does a great job. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's so much more in depth than what I realized. I was talking to Carlos about a project that I might need lights for and he's like, Oh Yeah. You just do this, this. I was like, oh, no, this is a whole yeah, a whole other world to learn. It uh, is a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I just learned about MIDI. Now I got to learn about all this, too? Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, well, we are getting close to the end of the show. I've got a couple classic questions that I like to ask to wrap this, this, these things up. But before I do, I like to give the guests the opportunity to take the floor, you know, Shout out their great aunt if they want. They can plug anything you want to plug. You can say hi to anybody you want to say hi to. You can say whatever you want to say to a, a few thousand people right now. Yeah. Um, we're on tour right now with Fit for an Autopsy until April 1st. Um, we have our new records coming out. Um, two new records, same day, May 12th. Whoa. And okay. that is uh, Step Into the Light and Failure Will Follow. They are separate records. Some people were confused by that, but... After we did uh, Slow Decay and we released it as a series of EPs, like we can never do a normal release again. So we're just <laughs> we're uh, just doing what we can. And I like uh, it. this year at Nam, you should see some new guitar models for me from Balaguer. Oh, um, are you gonna so, be there? Oh yes, I'll be there. I'll see you. I'll see you there. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. That's it. Well, that's really exciting. I guess we don't, we don't get to talk about those yet. Maybe on Patreon we can talk about those. Sure, yeah. Oh, okay, that sounds good. All right, classic questions. Here we go. First one, what is your favorite boss pedal? My favorite boss pedal? Um, I'm just going to go with – I'm not even going to go for the three. I'm going to go with the TU2, the don't. standard the standard <laughs> tuner that is just in, in with my you know, string change rig. All that, but really, I'll I'll say, HM two, the HM two. Get give me the chainsaw, you crank like the it, thing up. Do you like it in chainsaw mode? Oh yeah, oh, I it, can't make chainsaw mode work. It's Never. you got to be doing very specific things, um, but for those very specific things, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I I and was just I, playing mine last night, I was, and I tried. And there's chainsaw. a lot of uh, a lot of people do like the oh you got to get the Japanese one, the Taiwan Taiwanese one is junk. They're both good. I'm uh, I'm pretty good friends with Brian Wampler. Uh, we do another podcast together every week, and I've asked him about that, and he's like, "They are the same." Yeah, they <laughs> they are. Yeah, there might be some slight component differences here and there, but like they're identical. I, th- I think it's the same thing with between like the block letter and like the signature heads, and like people are like they're all oh, the block letters. It's a it's a direct clone of a Soldano. No, it's not. It's the same thing. They are identical. The tubes might be different because they've been changed over the years. Mm-hmm. That is that is also what I've been told. So I mean, it doesn't make me not prefer the block letter just because oh, yeah. I like looking at it. But right. that's that that doesn't mean that it doesn't sound the same. So yeah. All right, final question, and this is the one that gets uh, a little controversial, a little bit dicey, depending on you know, what part of the country you're from. Most of the time, what is your favorite kind of pizza? My favorite kind of pizza is. So I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. I like. There's a pizza shop, a little chain in Columbus called Massey's Pizza. Mm-hmm. It is 
tavern cut. So you've got your rectangular pieces, thin crust with cornmeal on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And there, you really get a pepperoni good. pizza and there's like a whole package of pepperoni just <laughs> all over the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will also say I like all pizza. Like unless it is actually bad pizza, not even bad pizza, just bad food. It's good. I like Little Caesars. I like I like all of it. But Massey's Pizza, Columbus, Ohio, Tavern Cut, that's my favorite. I'm going to have to look this up. I, I've, I've recently found, not recently at this point, I keep saying recently, but semi-recently as far as my life is concerned, I guess, I discovered Chicago-style Tavern Pizza, which is not deep dish. Yeah. Like, it's, it's very thin, very similar to what you just described, and I absolutely love it. It's yeah. like... It's like gourmet Totinos. Yeah, is, it's yeah. it's pretty great. Um, it what one thing that's really funny is this: the, whoever owns Massey's is fully unhinged. The pizza box, <laughs> the pizza box says the Cadillac of pizzas, and I'm like, I don't know what that means. It doesn't mean like my grandparents are going to drive this thing around. Um, and on the back of their menu, when it it tells you the story of Massey's, they refer to Columbus, Ohio, as the pizza capital of the universe, which is patently false uh, yeah i like, don't think that <laughs> i don't think that's accurate not even close no but uh i'll take it but hey hey they, they i mean in their mind just that's we're the is. best we're the we're the best obviously we're in columbus ohio yeah we're the capital we're the capital now <laughs> forget you new york like what's going on well dude thank you so much for hanging out this was really fun i learned a lot of things that I didn't know about you. That was great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude. Really, really fun. And uh, I'm excited to see what we can get into on the Patreon section. For sure. All right, everybody. For Devin, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. All righty, folks. There you have it. There is the episode. Thank you so much for hanging out. And yes, we did talk about aliens on the Patreon episode. So if you'd like to support the show and you'd like to get extra content beamed right to your ears every week, please go to patreon.com slash tone mob, where for five bucks a month, you will not only get access to the ad free feed of this podcast, you will also get bonus content beamed right to your ears. And it helps immensely. It really, 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 truly does. I know five bucks isn't quite what five bucks was five years ago, but it still goes a long ways to helping me keep on keeping on and keep producing this and keep doing this show for everyone. So thank you so much to everybody who does that. Make sure you check out Devin's new guitars that are coming out. I believe there will be more content on that very soon. Pay attention to the Balagher Instagrams and Devin's own personal Instagram and check out the Acacia Strain because they absolutely rip. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. I will talk to you on the internet very, very soon. Bye-bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, Go to ToneMob.com slash StringJoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things. And by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? 
Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.